Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 27, Deuteronomy chapter 21, continued. Okay, now we're going to continue this week with Deuteronomy chapter 21. And last time we discussed chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. The subject was unsolved murder. And as we saw, however, this was set in in the far larger context of blood guilt. Now, blood guilt occurs when one or more of God's laws concerning blood have been violated. Now, this week, we start a a pretty well-delineated section of Torah, beginning at 21.10 and working all the way through chapter 25, that many scholars and teachers call a list of miscellaneous laws. Now, my only quarrel with that description is that it gives the impression that these laws aren't laid down in any kind of concrete structure or do they have a common theme, when in fact that's just not the case. Okay, This four-chapter section we're starting with tonight deals with four main issues. Holy war, sex and family, care for the poorest and most vulnerable, and humanitarian concerns. Now, I mentioned at the start of our study on the book of Deuteronomy that what Moses is doing is expounding on the laws that had been laid down almost 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. Moses is giving a sermon that has a very interesting parallel in the New Testament in Yeshua's famous Sermon on the Mount, as found in the book of Matthew. In both cases, the purpose and the focus was to take these ancient laws and invigorate them with deeper spiritual meaning in some cases and a better defined life application in others. So what we find when we back away and we look at this section from a little higher view is that these laws are but an extension of the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. Therefore, the subjects are going to revolve around killing, adultery, including the sense of adultery that is, that is a combination of unfaithfulness and, and unlawful mixture, right? and then theft, false witness, and coveting. The focus of tonight's lesson is primarily marriage and family law. And the first thing we're going to deal with has to do with the marriage of a woman who's been captured in a war. Now, this would be a good time for me to remind you that the subject of the previous chapter, chapter 20, which was Holy War, continues on here in 21. And that any kind of war, by definition, deals with the killing of human beings. Now here's the thing to understand, especially as it concerns God-ordained and God-led warfare called holy war. Killing done under the rules he has laid down is considered justifiable and acceptable to him. While all others are not. It's not murder. 
if a person kills according to those rules, and therefore the killer, the soldier, remains at peace with God. Killing outside of the rules of holy warfare that God's ordained is not justified. And therefore, it brings the person, his community, and the land where it happened under blood guilt. Let's read some more of Deuteronomy chapter 21. We're going to start with uh, verse 10 and read it to the end. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 220. Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting at verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and Adonai your God hands them over to you, and you take prisoners, and you see among those prisoners a woman who looks good to you, and you feel attracted to her, and you want her as your wife, you're to bring her home to your house, where she will shave her head, cut her fingernails, and remove her prison clothing. She will stay there in your house, mourning her father and mother for a full month, after which... You may go in to have sexual relations with her and be her husband. She will be your wife. Now, in the event that you lose interest in her, you're to let her go wherever she wishes. But you may not sell her for money. You may not treat her like a slave because you humiliated her. Now, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and unloved wives have borne him children, And if the firstborn son is the child of the unloved wife, then when it comes time for him to pass his inheritance on to his sons, he may not give the inheritance due the firstborn to the son of the loved wife in place of the unloved one, who is in fact the firstborn. No, he must acknowledge as firstborn the son of the unloved wife by giving him a double portion of everything he owns. For he is the firstfruits of his manhood, and the right of the firstborn is his. Now, if a man has a stubborn, rebellious son, who will not obey what his father and mother says, and even after they discipline him, he still refuses to pay attention to them, then his father and mother are to take hold of him, bring him out to the leaders of his town, at the gate of that place, and then say to the leaders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't pay attention to us. He lives wildly. He gets drunk. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you. All Israel will hear about it and be afraid. If someone has committed a capital crime and is put to death and then hung on a tree, his body is not to remain there all all night on the tree. But you must bury him the same day. Because a person who has been hanged on a tree is cursed by God so that you will not defile your land which Adonai your God is giving you to inherit. Now while our previous two lessons dealt with the responsibility of Israeli public officials, this changes course. And it deals with private individuals and families and and their neighbors. And the first thing, the first issue deals with the human spoils of war. And it was common in ancient times among most societies to take the women and children of the enemy as captives and then make them slaves as part of the spoils of war. And when we read the Greek classics, we, we find the same thing occurring. So many 
of the laws that we're going to see here are actually quite similar to laws found that are recorded in like the Code of Hammurabi or the Mari law codes. And but but there is one striking difference. The Hebrew laws and the laws of Moses give the women prisoners of war the status of humans of value, not simply chattel that equates with animals or furniture. Therefore, the issue that's being dealt with here is about a female captive that a Hebrew soldier finds attractive. And so he wants to make her his wife. Now, let's not miss the very important context of this expose. We're speaking of Hebrew soldiers taking foreign women, foreign captives, as wives. Now, I pointed out way back in our study of Genesis that to speak of genealogical purity as regards Hebrews is really almost an oxymoron. From the time God set Abraham apart as the first Hebrew, thus meaning that all others on the planet were goyim, Gentiles, and therefore also ger, foreigners to Abraham's clan. Yehovah defined, defined a pathway for a ger, a foreigner, a Gentile, who wanted to join Abraham's clan to be able to do so. And by joining Abraham's clan and his Hebrew descendants' tribes, this former Gentile now became considered a Hebrew. This is very important to our redemption, folks. Now let me give you a biblical example of foreigners joining Israel. When Abraham's grandson, Jacob, came back to Canaan from his two decades long stay up in Mesopotamia, and then he settled outside of the city of Shechem, a tragic incident actually led to the size of his own family, Jacob's own family, multiplying virtually overnight. Okay. It was when the king of Shechem's son raped Jacob's daughter Dinah that her brothers attacked the city of Shechem and killed every adult male. And Genesis tells us that Jacob's sons, the future tribal leaders of Israel, also took all of the women and children of Shechem to be their slaves. In time, almost all of these Canaanite inhabitants of Shechem became part of one Israelite clan or another. It was customary for a tribe or a nation to take prisoners from another as a means to increase the size of their own community while decreasing the size of the enemy's community. Wealth was partly measured by the size of one's family and clan and tribe and nation. Point being that as a result of that raid on Shechem, Israel became almost an immediate, almost immediately an ethnically mixed family composed of Hebrews descended from Abraham and of Canaanites who would in time become naturalized members of, of Israel. So before Jacob even took his family down to Egypt, where they'd remained for 400 years, 
Israel was something on the order of 50% genealogical Hebrews and 50% Gentiles. And during their time down in Egypt, we're told that there was a, a tremendous amount of intermarriage between Jacob's family and the Egyptians, as well as other foreigners, because Egypt had a, a large foreign population living there. Now, even Moses, a Hebrew, married a Midianite woman. And we see that that same trend continues here in Deuteronomy with a set of laws designed to make it legal for an Israelite soldier to take a female foreign prisoner, a Gentile, and make her his wife. By definition, upon the marriage ceremony, she became a Hebrew. And thus the gene pool, beginning with Abraham, became further diluted. God's concern was never the racial purity of his chosen people. Just their spiritual purity and their faithfulness to him. Now before we go a little bit further concerning what's going to happen to this foreign female captive and what rights are accorded to her, I want to point out something that is masked by our English Bible translations. And it occurs in the very in the very first verse of our study today, verse 10. Our, our complete Jewish Bibles, for instance, say regarding the capture of these foreign women. And when you take prisoners, other versions say something like, and when you take some of them captive. Well, literally, what it says, something that actually might be familiar to your ears. It says, when you take the captives captive. If you're wondering where you might have heard that before, listen to Ephesians 4.8. This is why it says, after he, Jesus, went up into the heights, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to mankind. Now this phrase, he went up, what can it mean? If not, that he first went down into the lower parts of the earth. Now, last week I explained to you that according to both the Old and New Testaments, there existed such a people that we would call saints even before Jesus was born. Okay. These Old Testament Hebrew saints were those who died trusting God and living in Torah, who had faithfully followed the sacrificial system, and so they died in a righteous state in God's eyes. These Old Testament saints did not go to, directly to heaven. Okay. Instead, they went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Okay. The name of one of two chambers for departed souls that exists under the earth. The other being called Hades, a place of torments. Yeshua also referred to Abraham's bosom as paradise. Now, these Old Testament saints remained captive in Abraham's bosom, which was a place of joy and shalom, until Messiah 
had completed his earthly ministry and then ascended at which time he took those inhabitants with him to heaven. The phrase in Ephesians 4 that we read that speaks of how Yeshua led captivity captive is an, an odd one that we've, we, we've typically struggled to understand. Well, here's another case whereby studying the Torah makes the question pretty easily resolved. In Deuteronomy 21.10, we have essentially the same phrase, and of course it means the same thing that it means in the New Testament. This odd-sounding phrase is simply a result of a Hebrew word structure. Now, I know the New Testament documents, including Ephesians that we have available, were written in Greek, but it's Hebrew thought about Hebrew culture. Hebrew phraseology that's being transmitted to us. It was just written down, accurately I might add, in Greek. Therefore, what's meant in Ephesians 4.8 is that these Old Testament saints called captives who had been held safely, held captive, inside Abraham's bosom, Jesus now took with him into heaven. So what we see in both Deuteronomy 21.10 and Ephesians 4.8 is a change in status of those who are being affected. Status is being changed. In Deuteronomy, these Gentile women, these captives, are having their status changed from being free Canaanites to prisoners of Israel. Some of the women will eventually marry Hebrew men and they're going to lose all of their Canaanite identity. In Ephesians, Ephesians 4.8, the captives of Abraham's bosom are having their status changed by Messiah. They are going from being citizens of a holding area that is not heaven but is a godly place to being citizens of heaven in the very presence of God. And by the way, from the moment Yeshua took those captives to heaven with him, Abraham's bosom became permanently vacant. Because all who trust God by means of faith in Messiah Yeshua now go directly to the heaven and not some intermediate waiting place. There's no need. So a foreign woman is taken captive as a result of this holy war. And an Israelite soldier takes a fancy to her. He wants to marry her. And the procedure is that he's to take her to his home for a period of one lunar month, 30 days. And the foreign woman, it says, is to shave her hair, cut her fingernails, discard the clothing she was captured in. And during this time, these verses say, she's also to mourn her parents. Now, what does all this mean? What's going on here? Well, while there's not a full consensus, the meaning is becoming more generally agreed upon by Bible scholars. By shaving her hair, this does not mean shaving her head. It just means cutting her hair short. Okay? Trimming her fingernails and changing into Hebrew garments from her Canaanite garments, a process of changing her identity from a Gentile to an Israelite has begun. Okay? Each culture had a more or less unique hairstyle, clothing style. 
And just like today, the women decorated their fingernails to some degree or another. By getting rid of all these things, her ties with her old life are symbolically left behind. This further extends to the idea of her mourning her mother and father. It's not necessarily that her parents were were killed, although undoubtedly that probably happens sometimes as a result of war. But it is that she is being given an opportunity to forget her parents, so to speak. To give up her natural familial associations that she was born into, theoretically in favor of new ones by means of her Hebrew husband and her new Hebrew identity. We get exactly the same picture in the New Testament for believers. Mark 10.29, Yeshua said, Yes, I tell you that there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundred times over now in the Olam Hazah, world to come. Okay. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the Olam Haba, the eternal life. We also get the same instruction regarding marriage in that a couple is to leave their parents, give up their primary identity as being part of their parents' household, and instead the couple is to cleave to one another, creating a new identity as a married couple. So the concept is, in the Old Testament, that this prisoner woman leaves behind her Gentile identity with her original family, a Canaanite family, for a new one, an Israelite one. And wouldn't you just know it, that's the exact spiritual sense in the New Testament of what Yeshua was communicating about leaving your identity as a member of the world, of Gentiles, in favor of becoming a member of the kingdom of God, of Hebrews. Now verse 13 makes it clear that only after this one month waiting period can the man marry this woman and then consummate their marriage? Inherent in this is that if the woman is miserable and staunchly resistant to, to her new reality, then a marriage doesn't happen. Likely because if she's a miserable person to be around, he's not going to want to marry her anyway. Therefore, it says verse 14, If the man changes his mind before the end of 30 days and decides he doesn't want this foreigner to be his wife, she must be set free. Not as a slave, but as a free person. He can't change his mind and then sell her to somebody. He can't change his mind and make her his unwilling slave. So we see the decency and great regard that the law has for women, even foreign women prisoners, expressed here. Now, I will understand that in modern Western society, even this is hardly considered a delightful prospect for a woman to be captured and married this way, that God would make it a law for Hebrews to give women rights and then hold them up as valuable as men, though, was quite a shift from normalcy for that era. It was going to become, actually, the cornerstone 
of the Hebrew way of life, of family life. Now, beginning in verse 15, the subject shifts to what happens in a polygamous family when one wife is more loved than another by the husband. Now, some translations say about this, when one wife is loved and the other is hated, our complete Jewish Bible says when one's loved and the other's unloved. Now, understand that the meaning here is not a case of intense like versus intense dislike or of complete devotion to one wife and utter disdain for the other. Okay. Rather, it's that one wife is more favored than the other. And the reality is that this is at the root of why God doesn't want polygamy among his people. Polygamy causes nothing but trouble. There is no way that a man can have two wives and not have some preference of one over the other, even if in his own mind the degree of it is very small. And even if he is as even-handed as is humanly possible, what woman, I'm told... is honestly going to believe that she's being dealt with fairly as compared with her rival. Was I told right, ladies? Yeah, probably. And then what wife isn't going to try to become the more favored wife? Which probably won't sit very well with the other one. Well, this exact scenario was played out several centuries prior to the laws of Moses in the story of the life of Jacob. He was tricked, more or less, into marrying Leah and then had to agree to keep her as his wife in order to marry the one he really intended to marry, Leah's sister, Rachel. Now talk about the worst of all world. This guy's married sisters. (laughs) Natural rivals in most cases. Okay, And one of them, he didn't even want to marry. Now naturally, he loves Rachel more than Leah, and this causes big problems in Jacob's household. It's not that he didn't love Leah, but his affections were far more towards Rachel. And it was probably pretty obvious. Now little Reuben, poor Leah's son, even schemed with his mother to feed daddy, Jacob, an aphrodisiac. Mandrakes, in hopes of making Leah more desirable to Jacob and and thereby soothing Leah's constantly hurt feelings and insecurities. But the issue of multiple wives gets more complicated once it gets time to pass on the family inheritance to the next generation. The next couple of verses now envision a very typical problem among a polygamous family. A father is instinctively going to want to give the firstborn rights to the son of his favored wife over the son of his less favored wife, even if the less favored wife's son was born first. Again, the prime example of what can happen is with Jacob. Did you know that indeed his very firstborn son was Reuben? the child of the less favored wife, Leah. So even though it was for what seems to be a pretty legitimate reason, still Reuben 
was passed over. And the firstborn rights instead wound up going to Joseph, Jacob's 11th child, a son of his favored wife, Rachel. By custom and tradition, it was a wrong thing to do. So here in verse 16 is the explicit statement that a father must not pass over the eldest son even if he's the eldest son of the least favored wife. But that's what Jacob did. And we don't have to work very hard to conjure up a mental picture of all this, do we? In our era of divorces being common and the standard inclusion of stepchildren in what sociologists now call blended families, dividing up one's attention among these children of different mothers and fathers is tough enough. But dividing up the inheritance is even harder. It's nearly impossible to please all involved or for all to feel that the division is fair. Now, another connected subject is dealt with, beginning in verse 18, and it's what to do with the matter of a wayward son. Okay, Put another way, what do you do with a rebellious and defiant child? And the next few verses answer that question. First, this rebellious son is defined as one who will not obey his mother and father, even after they've tried to discipline him in all kinds of the standard ways. Second, it is that the mother and father must agree that the level of this disobedience is very serious. Something has to be done. Third, they essentially turn him over, as a result of all this, to civil authorities. Now, if the civil authorities think that this son's a particularly worthless son, the Hebrew expression for this is a glutton and a drunk, then he can be stoned to death. Now, does that sound just a tad severe to you? Would you consider execution as a viable often if you were trying to raise a particularly hard case? You're not alone. The rabbis decided that this punishment was so severe that they made rulings that required such an extreme and unlikely set of circumstances to unwind in order for a rebellious son to be executed that it really never happened. In fact, we won't find a single case in all the Bible of parents turning their defiant son over to elders basically to be executed. Basically, this law was only used as a means to strike fear into a, to an incorrigible child. The noted Biblical scholar J.C. Maxwell made this observation on this subject of rebellion and disobedience. Uh, and I'd like to share this with you. He says this. He says, when a person, a Christian, is confronted with his own disobedience to biblical commands, he or she is more likely to hear and sneer than to hear and fear. Why is that? Because the church body lacks discipline. The greatest deterrent to sin in a society is that the people love God and fear Him by means of obeying His commands. Love without fear is but mush. Fear without love is but legalism. Only the two together in proper balance bring about the obedience required by God. I think that's pretty profound. I think it's right on. 
Now allow me to point out a couple of things about the procedures with the disobedient son, and we're going to move on quickly to the next topic. First of all, notice that both parents must agree. Okay. The mother has equal weight with the father in this matter, showing just how unusually powerful a mother was in a Hebrew family as compared to most others in that era, and I don't think much has changed since then. Now, next, this is not a matter that the parents have made a decision that their child should die. So they just take him to the elders for execution. Execution is just the maximum allowed sentence that can be imposed, but other remedies were typically available and much preferred, of course. The point is that the parents were not the judge and jury. They simply brought their hard case to the town's court. And the courts investigated, and then they kind of made a judgment on how best to deal with this problem child. Now further notice that it is the men of the town, theoretically, who stone this rebellious child. The parents are not asked to be involved, of course, due to many other principles set down by the Lord about what can be reasonably expected between parents and their offspring. Now we also see the Lord's purpose behind this harsh consequence that he ordains. And we see it in verse 21. He says, the reason for this is, thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Now, totalitarian societies know all too well how to utilize fear to control people. Fear is the main tool used to one degree or another in virtually every society that I'm aware of to maintain order. From a biblical point of view, fear of the consequences of doing wrong is not only a good and healthy thing, it's utterly indispensable. The difference between the type of fear that God is ordering versus that brought about by totalitarian societies is that in the one case, actual evil is being fought and purged from the society, and the other, evil is being wrought upon the community by the government. The entire reason that the Lord demands such harsh consequences for evil rebellion against him by trespassing against his most fundamental principles is for the benefit of everybody else. I'm afraid that our modern progressive societies have forgotten just how it is that evil must be eradicated or it will eventually affect and infect others. And evil certainly isn't effectively dealt with by means of education of the criminal. Now the final topic of Deuteronomy 21 has many ramifications that I think most of you will instantly recognize. It is that if a man is justifiably executed for for a capital offense, then if part of the procedure is to have his corpse 
impaled on a stake, it has to be taken down before nightfall. Now, where have we heard that sort of principle before? Of course, in the crucifixion story of Yeshua HaMashiach. It was the norm in Bible times that the body of a dead criminal was put up on a pole or a stake for public display. It was intended to act as a pretty gruesome reminder of what happens to a trespasser of the law. Sometimes the stake was a large pointed pole upon which either the man was actually impaled to kill him or at other times after he was dead, he was impaled. However, the hung on a pole or, or, or stake phrase does not indicate that the means of his being placed there was even necessarily impalement. Uh, two things about this to understand. First of all, the term when we see it in our Bibles, hanging, he was hung on a pole. It doesn't mean strangulation by the neck, like in a gallows. Okay? The Hebrews didn't employ hanging by the neck as a means of execution. Second, more often than not, the corpse had his arms tied to a crossbeam, which was then mounted at the top of a pole that would be located beside a, a roadway or some other very visible public place. Impalement of the body wasn't the usual or customary method, but it did happen. Now, proper and respectful treatment of the dead, even of a criminal, was the norm for Middle Eastern cultures. Although what was proper and respectful wasn't always the same within every culture. Now here the Lord does not try, there's no attempt here, to deter the practice of hanging the corpse of a criminal in a public place. Rather, it's only that at the end of the first day of his death, enough is enough. And he needs to be taken down and properly buried. Further, the criminal's body can't just be thrown over a cliff or laid out to rot for scavengers to do what scavengers do. Instead, the body has to be buried at the end of the day of that execution. That's the law. Now, what this final verse tells us is that while respect for the dead is appropriate, there is a spiritual reason for this treatment of the corpse. It is that to not to bury that body is an affront to God. If the body is not buried, the consequence is that the land will be defiled. What does that remind you about that we just studied this past week? That's right, blood guilt. The principle I stated at the outset of our lesson is that to kill a man is not automatically wrong. But one is to follow God's procedures to determine if death is appropriate or not, and if it is, uh, if it is appropriate, just how that killing is to be carried out. And now this instruction is all about the treatment of the criminal's dead body. If one follows all of these instructions, then this killing, this execution, not only does not bring 
blood guilt upon the people of the land. It actually purges the blood guilt that had been created by that criminal's act. But if the instructions aren't followed, even if the accused is fully guilty, then this justifiable killing brings blood guilt upon the community and the land. Now let's bring today's lesson to a close with this parallel between the statements about Jesus' death on the cross and these statements here about being hung on a pole. First, let's look at this statement again here in Deuteronomy 21-23. It says, Because a person who has been hanged has been cursed by God. By definition, and many translators add the words, being hanged means being hanged on a on a pole or a tree. Because as I said earlier, there was no such thing as hanging by the neck until dead in Hebrew society. Now before we go to the New Testament verse, let's be very clear about what this is saying. What it is not saying is that the result of being hung on a pole is that the person is cursed of God. Rather, what it does mean is that the person is cursed of God and therefore they are being hung on a pole. See the difference? You're not hung on a pole and as a result of being on the pole you get cursed. You're cursed and so you're hung on a pole. Being hung on a pole is because they were cursed by Yahweh. Death by execution was understood to be legal, formal, and a formal and final separation of a person from the community of God. With that understanding, let's look now at the well-known verse in the New Testament that speaks of the state of a person who is hanged as it relates to Messiah. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us because it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. First of all, when Paul says it's written, it is written, he's referring to the Holy Scriptures, which was, of course, what we call today the Old Testament, because that's all there was in his day. There wasn't anything else. In this case, the passage he was quoting here in Galatians is what we're studying today. Deuteronomy 21-23. The Jews of Paul's day fully understood the dramatic and forceful statement that he was making, even if they didn't fully understand all of the, the spiritual and the redemptive issues involved. Christ took upon himself the curse of the law, which is the penalty of death in both the sense of physical death and spiritual separation from the Father, as a redemption payment for us, so that we didn't have to face that curse. Now please listen very carefully and store this one away in your memories. When the New Testament speaks of the curse of the law, it's speaking about only one thing. Death, complete death, 
physical and spiritual death. The curse of the law is death. The blessing of the law is life. Another parallel term for this in the New Testament is the wages of sin is death. You receive the curse of the law, which is death, because your sin earned it. You merit or earn death because of sinning. These statements about the curse of the law and the wages of sin are just two ways of dealing with the same thing. The Father cursed Christ. The proof of which, says Paul, is that Yeshua was indeed hung on a stake. Because that's what happens to a person who's been cursed. Jesus' separation from the community of God is physical death. And for a few moments, his, his separation from the Father. Remember the statement, Matthew 27, 46. At about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? This was the sacrificial substitution for what rightfully should have happened to us. So by studying the Torah, we can better see what happened at Christ's crucifixion. It was the law of Deuteronomy 21 that any executed criminal had to be removed from the death stake by nightfall. That the women hurried to get Yeshua taken off that cross and buried because the Sabbath would be ushered in at sunset is true but secondary to the fact that not to do so would have broken the law of Deuteronomy 21. Even if the next day hadn't been a festival Sabbath, which is what it was, it was critical that Messiah's body be taken off that pole and buried. And what would have been the result if they had not been able to persuade the Romans to cut Jesus down? As it says here in Deuteronomy 21-23, the land would have been defiled with blood guilt. And the local community of Jerusalem, these women disciples included, would have been saddled with blood guilt. It is truly a fascinating and sad commentary on the depraved state of the Jewish religious leadership of Yeshua's era that the priests the temple priests who watched him die didn't seem to care a whit about God's law in this matter they didn't care whether that Jewish man might hang on that pole overnight thereby soaking everyone and everything in blood guilt rather it was the common Jewish folk who knew what had to be done in order to obey God. And they did it. Next week we'll take up chapter 22.